Well, we've been studying in the book of Revelation as uh, one aspect of God's uh, mighty warfare, and you can turn in your bulletins to page 22 for the text. Revelation 8, 12 through 13. So the fourth angel trumpeted, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them was darkened. So a third of the day did not shine, and the night likewise. And I saw and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice three times, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining trumpet blasts of the three angels who were about to trumpet. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to understand it, to worship you better, to trust you better, and to serve you better as a result of understanding it. We pray for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there has been a logical grouping of the first four trumpets because they all relate to the Roman legate uh, Cestius, who is sometimes called Gaius or Caius Cestius Gallus. Uh, but starting next week, we're going to be seeing that the last three trumpets relate to Titus and his father Vespasian, and they cover the remainder of the war going all the way up to A.D. 70. And the last three trumpets are called uh, the Three Woes. Now, we've been seeing so far that there is a perfect, seamless, historical progression from chapter 5 right up to the third trumpet that we looked at last week. We would expect that same progression to continue. I don't buy into the cheating that sometimes goes on in commentaries where they say, well, some of these trumpets are out of order. And uh, I say, no, no, there is, uh, you don't have to take them out of order for them to be perfectly fulfilled to a T. We have seen each one of them was fulfilled. And it's remarkable to see the detail with which those prophecies were fulfilled in history. Now, we're going to see today there is not as much uh, external historical uh, evidence for the signs themselves. There's plenty of evidence for what they symbolized, but for the signs themselves occurring in history, we're going to see some evidence. But before we uh, dig into that passage, let me give you a review of what we have covered so far, because it's been a long time since I've given you kind of a bird's-eye review of where we have been. Um, <clears throat> Chapters 4 through 5, we'll go back that far. Chapters 4 through 5 show Christ ascended to his throne in AD 30, and he immediately goes to work in bringing covenant lawsuits uh, against the nations. And this gives us a paradigm for how he's going to continue to work throughout the new covenant uh, age. You cannot say that um, in the Old Testament the nations were accountable to God and how they kept uh, God's laws. And you can't even say those laws were just for Israel. We saw that Jesus very explicitly applies the Old Testament canon uh, to the unbelieving nations in New Testament times and judges those nations for breaking that standard. Now, I don't know how you can get a better proof for the theonomy, doctrine of theonomy, than that scroll. Now, I've been arguing with people on the website about politics recently. Some of you may have noticed that. And it never ceases to amaze me how Christians can have the audacity of saying that the Bible does not apply to politics, and Jesus isn't interested in Christianizing nations, and no, 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 the law no longer can be used when you're talking about those kinds of areas, that our guiding principle needs to be pragmatism, not the Bible. And yet we saw in chapters 4 through 5 that Christ is established as not only the Savior of the world, but also as the Lord over all of history and over all of the world, and he continues to judge nations based on that law. So it's a marvelous passage on the law and the gospel. And he is determined to spread his gospel to the ends of the world. And so we've been seeing that nations that embrace the gospel are blessed. 
Nations that resist and rebel against that gospel are cursed. And all you have to do is read history, and you see that's exactly what has been happening over the last 2,000 years. So they're very, very useful chapters in showing us uh, how it's kind of a paradigm for how Christ is going to handle the rest of history. How Jesus judged Rome and Israel is a paradigm for how he will deal with nations in our own time. And so this book assures us we can expect continued judgments in America if America does not repent. Now I say continued judgments because we are not waiting for judgment. We've been under judgment for a long, long time. We saw under the seals that statism, for example, is one of Christ's many creative judgments that he brings upon nations when we treat the state as if it's the Messiah that delivers us from all of our problems. He says, you know, your idolatry is sick, and I'm going to make you sick and miserable under that idolatry, and so he punishes us with the statism that, that, that God turns upon them. So let's just do a quick review here. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, we saw that the first seal related to Christ inflicting the Roman emperor Tiberius upon the world as a judgment. Then comes Caligula in verses 3 through 4. That's the second seal. That's even worse. Then comes Claudius in verses 5 through 6. Now that constituted a massive increase in the centralization of government. That's a judgment. But they still would not repent. They still are looking to the state as savior. So he inflicts them with Nero in verses 7 and following. So in terms of structure, one of the things that you're going to notice between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls is that the first four are grouped together very logically, and they tend to be introductory, very brief. And then the, the last three of the seals are much more expansive, just like the last three of the trumpets are much more uh, detailed and expansive. Anyway, the fourth seal deals with the first part of Nero's reign in AD 54 through 61. The fifth seal deals with AD 62 to early 66. The sixth seal is in early May of AD 66, and there is a discussion of the martyrs, as well as those whom God chose to seal and protect and spare. Then in chapter 8, we get to the seventh seal, which we saw took place on May 18, or Sivan 6. That seventh seal seamlessly moves into the seven trumpets. The first trumpet in verse 7 of our chapter is September 8. Uh, that was the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. The second trumpet comes immediately after that in early September. Third trumpet is later in September. Then 30 days later, 30 days after he began that war, Cestius camped at Jerusalem. And on October 15, he suffered a stunning defeat at the hands of the Jewish rebels. So the signs that are listed in this fourth trumpet that we read about take place sometime in the first two weeks of October. Okay, they're foreshadowing the imminent fall of Cestius, Herod Agrippa, and a third of the pro-Roman Sadducean priests. Now, I mentioned that the specific signs in this fourth trumpet are not nearly as well documented in secular history as the earlier ones were. Now, what's symbolized, very, very well documented, but we only have hints that the miraculous signs were indeed fulfilled. It's rather thin evidence, but let me give you the three historical hints that I have found so far. First, the early historian Hegesippus says right at this very time that we are looking at, uh, there were, quote, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. It doesn't tell us what the signs were, but he says something weird was going on in the sun, moon, and stars. I think it's significant that he mentions all three in, in that order. So I would say Hegesippus is the first proof that this uh, passage was fulfilled. He doesn't go into the details. But he says there's something profound, something astounding and noteworthy that was happening in the sun, moon, and stars. First hint. Second, Josephus also speaks of multiple signs in the heavens in AD 66. 
And by the way, the, the Greek word for signs is something miraculous, something that is unexplainable uh, that they said was going on. That's what the Greek word means. Now, he didn't specify what all of those signs were or when they occurred. Josephus implies that they occurred in 66. Uh, Hegesippus makes that quite specific, but Josephus may well be referring to the same signs. Now, the third hint is actually, if you look at some of the different uh, modern commentaries, some of them have actually used this to show that this trumpet occurs in A.D. 68, where this trumpet does not belong, okay? And since exegesis trumps uh, secular historical records every time, we're going to stay anchored in October of A.D. 66, but I'm going to quote from Dion Cassius because the signs that he mentions may well take place earlier uh, at this very uh, time period, and I'll explain why in a bit. But let me quote him first. Cassius says, a comet was seen, and the moon, contrary to precedent, appeared to suffer two eclipses, and now notice this phrase, being obscured on the fourth and on the seventh day. Also people saw two suns at once, one in the west, weak and pale, and one in the east, brilliant and powerful. Now the reason some people date uh, those signs in AD 68 is because Cassius thought that these signs were previous omens that Vespasian would replace the earlier uh, emperors. And um, uh, he does say that they occurred before the soldiers urged him to become an emperor in the fall of AD 68. He didn't say how much earlier. A lot of people assume it occurred in 68, but he didn't say that. And secondly, I have scientific evidence, data, that seems to indicate that at least the first sign that Cassius mentions had to have taken place two years earlier. If you go to NASA's website and trace out the appearance of all of the comets, and they've got fascinating data on uh, lunar eclipses, solar eclipses, comets, all that kind of stuff, uh, they point out that there was a comet that came by in ja around January 25 of AD 66. It was Halley's Comet, but there were no comets in AD 68. And um, other historians refer to that same comet as the first of several signs that occur throughout the year of AD 66. So if, as Cassius seems to indicate, the other signs that he talked about occur after the comet, and if he's referring to Halley's Comet when he talks about that, then it would be parallel to what the other historians talk about, and it would indicate that his signs actually occurred at exactly the same time that Hegesippus says they did, right at this period. So that's all the historical record that I've been able to discover. It's pretty slim uh, evidence. Um, there is actually, uh, if you look at the backside of your... Um, outlines, you'll see some coins that some people use as evidence. Uh, some people say, if you look at the numismatic uh, sites, they say these coins indicate that there was a striking of the sun and the moon at the time that these things were minted. Whether that's true or not, who knows. Uh, but I'm not going to say spend any more time on, on the um, literal fulfillment of the signs. We've seen all down through uh, the, the first chapters, uh, these signs have been uh, uh, fulfilled, and I take it that this one has as well. Um, people have tried to explain away Cassius's signs in terms of optical illusions in the atmosphere, perhaps created by fire or created by some of the volcanic dust. Uh, others have discounted the signs. I don't feel any need to defend Cassius, but there are skeptics who like to scoff at anything that they can find in the Bible. And they scoff at the idea that a third of the sun could be struck at any time, whether it's off in the future or in the past. They say, that's ridiculous. If a third of the sun was struck, life on earth would cease to exist as we, as we uh, know it. So let me at least give enough information to be able to answer the skeptics. 
And my first answer is exegetical. There are some commentaries who actually push this trumpet off to the end of history because they don't know how to answer that objection. Evangelicals don't have that option. You cannot do that. Take a look at verse 13. Verse 13 makes clear that whatever striking this was, there are people living after it. It's not at the end of history. There's all of the history of chapters 9 through 11 that still need to take place because it says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts of the three angels who are about to trumpet. Now those words remaining and which are about to indicates a historical sequence. Well, some people place this after the later trumpets. You can't do that. The last three trumpets have to come historically after the first four trumpets. That's just uh, straight exegesis. I don't know how you can get around that, yet some people try to do that. So whatever the striking of the sun was, it was not designed to wipe out planet Earth. Um, and to imply that it was means that we've misunderstood what God meant by the striking of the sun. So that's our inspired guide on how to interpret these signs. Second, you can respond with me with the three historical references to the weird things that happened in AD 66 to the sun, moon, and stars. And Hegesippus ties it very, very precisely to this period of time. But thirdly, there are some quite plausible scientific explanations of what could have happened uh, at this time. I'm not saying any one of these theories is true. All I'm saying is if any one of these theories is plausible, is a possible explanation, then skeptics can't say, this is wrong, it can't happen, it's unscientific. If there's a plausible scientific explanation, it, it kind of cuts the feet out from under the skeptics. Now the first explanation is perhaps the simplest one. We've already looked at the volcanism of the Mediterranean region that began in May of that year, AD 66, and continued uh, with eruptions all the way through to the fall in Italy and Greece uh, in that general area. There's a great deal of scientific evidence for that. Well, with the megatons of volcanic ash that were being spewed up into the jet stream, uh, it's probably this ash is covering the whole Mediterranean uh, region. Now, couple that with the fact that one ounce of, uh, of volcanic ash apparently absorbs 25,000 times more light than your average ounce of dust would uh, absorb. It's not at all hard to imagine both daylight and nightlight from the moon and from the stars being diminished by one-third. And interestingly, when Joel II prophesies this same war, it couples the darkening of the sun and the moon with, quote, pillars of smoke. Now, if you take the pillars of smoke as being these volcanoes shooting the ash way up into the air, okay, well, that would, be, that would lend some credibility to this theory. The second explanation is similar. Uh, we know from history that Cestius had already lit a great deal of Galilee and northern Judea on fire. So by the time he gets to Jerusalem, which is where this trumpet takes place, by the time he gets to Jerusalem to lay siege to it, the smoke from the towns and from the forest fires and brush fires uh, may have obscured a great deal of the light. Now, some people object that those interpretations are not sufficient. They say that those interpretations do not constitute the sun being struck. That would simply be the sun being obscured. Okay, you're not striking the sun, they say. They say verse 12 demands that the sun itself be struck. So they suggest that this could be one of the coronal holes that happen from time to time. Now, in your outline, I've given you three pictures of coronal holes, one dating from June 18 of 2013. You'll see it's a different color because they just put a different filter on. But NASA says of that picture, NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory captured this picture of the sun on June 18, 2013, showing a huge coronal hole seen here in dark blue spread out over almost the entire upper left quadrant of the sun. 
A coronal hole is an area of the sun's atmosphere, the corona, where the magnetic field opens up and the material flows quickly out. This results in a cooler and less dense atmosphere than the surrounding areas. This coronal hole is at least 400,000 miles across, which is more than 50 Earths side by side. Coronal holes spew out fast solar wind, probably traveling at about 400 to 500 miles per second. This is roughly twice the speed of the normal solar wind. And it goes on to describe the geomagnetic storms in terms of their uh, severity. It'll rate them either G1, which is the least severe, all the way up to G5. You get a G5, which we haven't had uh, since the 1800s, uh, and that'll completely wipe out the um, electric grid, and it'll cause some other uh, damage and problems as well. So the question is, could that be what is being referred to as the sun being struck? I say, well, maybe, maybe it could be. And we know that other suns or stars can have the same dark spots. Recently, NASA discovered a dark spot on the sun known as XX Triangulum, or HD 12545. This sunspot, they've seen sunspots on all kinds of suns, but this sunspot is the largest one that they have ever seen on any sun uh, to date, much larger than the entire dimension of our sun. So could literally a third of all stars have been struck with coronal holes so that a third of their mass was a coronal hole. Yeah, they could. I don't think it needs to be in order to fulfill the language of the, of the passage, but it's a plausible explanation. The fourth theory that I have read ties this in with God's glory cloud, which he, we saw in, in verses 1 through 6, left the temple uh, in, 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 what was it, May? May of 8066, left the temple and stood over the uh, Mount of Olives for three and a half years, for the duration of the war. And I read one author who said that this glory cloud could have brought supernatural darkness just like it brought supernatural darkness in the Exodus. Remember when they were standing in front of the Red Sea and it put darkness on the Egyptians and it put light on the Israelites? It, it could have put darkness there. Uh, could have darkened a third of the day, darkened a third of the night. So that's theory number four. And then one last possibility would be a combination of any or all of those four theories or perhaps a totally new theory that nobody's come up with yet. Uh, the first part of verse 12 could refer to sun, moon, and stars themselves being struck, while the last part of verse 12 would refer to the light being obscured. So it could be two different things. In one sense, it really doesn't matter if we know what happened. Exegesis is not dependent on history. Uh, we have to keep reinforcing that. Exegesis is not dependent on history. We've been seeing the signs of all of the seals and trumpets literally happened in history, and there's no reason to assume they did not happen exactly as stated in October of 8066. And that would certainly explain the mention that Dion Cassius and Josephus made of miracles, of signs, of awesome things that happened in the sun, the moon, and the stars. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, some people think that that is what is being recorded in those coins. It's uh, celebrating something massive that happened to the sun and the moon and the stars, which are pictured on all of those coins. And that's all I'm going to say about the literal fulfillment of these signs. Uh, the far more important question that we have asked every time we come to the signs in the scripture, okay, we got the literal sign, but what does it signify? Keep in mind that all of these historical events are described as symbols in the book of Revelation. So just as Moses' rock that he struck was a literal rock, but it was also a symbol of something, we need to ask, okay, what are these things that happened in history signifying? What are they symbolic of? Well, in Scripture, sun, moon, and stars are symbols of some kind of leadership. Usually the sun refers to either a top leader, as in Genesis 37, verse 9, or to an empire. And the moon is a vassal king or a leader who represents the top leader or reflects his light. So in 2 Samuel 23, 4, 
the sun symbolized any king of any nation. But in Isaiah 13, verse 10, and in Isaiah 24, verse 23, the sun symbolizes the entire empire of Babylon. In Ezekiel 32, verse 7, the sun symbolized the empire of Egypt. And that's the way commentaries normally will approach this symbol of the sun here. If this occurs in the first century, which we've already been seeing, we have been forced by exegesis to conclude. If it occurs in the fourth century, you would expect automatically that this would be a symbol of Rome, which is the biggest and the baddest power that is out there. And it was. You see it on the coins. You see it on the temples, on cameos, and in other engravings. I think that would have been the first thing that would have come into the minds of first century readers because all their lives they had been carrying coins that had, and there's hundreds of coins, that have Rome represented by soul, the, 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 um, the god of the sun uh, for the Romans. Nero had an elaborate dining room constructed that had a dome with the moon and the stars on it and the universe revolving around him once every 24 hours. It was run by slaves. It was quite elaborate machinery. Right around this time, the time of this trumpet, Nero was in Greece, quote unquote, winning all of the Olympic games. Uh, everybody let him win. They'd be in deep trouble if they didn't let him win. But he was winning Olympic games and declaring himself to be the unconquered son, uh, sole invictus. And he was part of a tradition of emperors being pictured as the unconquered son on coins for the next two and a half centuries. Little did he realize that the scriptures portrayed him as the conquered son, the conquered son. How did that happen? Well, the Roman legate, Cestius Gallus, was sent by Nero to punish Israel. Well, his legions would go down in flames before the Jewish rebels, and one-third of his army would be killed. He was so humiliated by that defeat, many people believe that his death that came shortly thereafter was actually a suicide. Josephus seems to assume that he committed suicide. And I'll fill you in in the, in the history in a little bit, but the coins, the temple artwork, cameos of Nero, other representations frequently use the sun symbol as either the symbol of Nero or the symbol of the empire of Rome. But since the moon's whole purpose is to reflect the sun, the coins of the vassal kings represent them as moons. And I have looked at literally hundreds of coins that symbolize these kings with a moon. It's very, very interesting. And it, almost always it's a crescent moon or a partial moon. Now many analysts say that it's a struck moon and a struck sun at the same time. So the same biblical passages that I alluded to earlier show the sun as the highest power, show the moon to represent tributary powers. And I put two coins into your outline that show Herod Agrippa. He's the king at this time, remember? Herod Agrippa. Uh, one has a moon on the obverse, and the other has the moon right next to his head. You'll see it there. Why the moon? Well, his sole job, as far as Rome is concerned, was to reflect Rome's rule. He was responsible to keep Rome's peace in his region. He couldn't have his own light. He could only reflect Nero's light. So Herod Agrippa II joined Cestius to fight against Israel, and he too lost a third of his army, of his soldiers. A third of the moon was struck. And I think first century readers would have gotten that immediately. It's like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. They could immediately connect. I've got to explain all of these things because we're almost 2,000 years removed from the historical events. But I think these things would immediately have connected in their minds. But we saw last week that the Sadducees had claimed the star as a symbol for the high priesthood and for the Sadducean party. Remember that? We gave all kinds of images on their tombs, on their, on their temple coins. And so we would expect that the other stars would represent the remainder of the Sadducees. And one of the coins commemorating the defeat of Israel 
as a captive shows a woman with the moon and the stars being plucked. And that coin perfectly, I think, pictures this war. Now, I don't have historical references that describe exactly how many of the Sadducean party were killed or how many vacated the city in October of AD 66. We know they were virtually wiped out by AD 70. But all that Josephus tells us is that Ananus the high priest, numerous leaders with him, and numerous pro-Roman priests were killed after they tried to let Cestius into the city. They said they gave a secret message to him. We'll open the gates to you. Please come in and deal with the unrest that, that we're facing uh, uh, here. And um, it, it was um, their, their one opportunity to get in there. And likewise, after the defeat of Cestius, uh, Josephus tells us a good chunk of the wealthy sector of the Jews left Israel the moment the Jews chased uh, Cestius out into the countryside. It was their one window of time to escape. It's the very last time that any Christians were able to escape from uh, Jerusalem uh, without being killed as traitors or defectors. And after that, anybody who was in Jerusalem was pretty much a prisoner. The rebels would not let anybody leave. But Josephus says of this two or three day spot, after this calamity had befallen Cestius, many of the most eminent of the Jews swam away from the city as from a ship when it was going to sink. So those people who escaped, those eminent Jews, they may have been some of the stars. Others may have been the priests who were killed. We don't have a lot of history, you know, secular history out there. But the inspired text, it's crystal clear. One-third, one-third of the priestly leaders was lost in Jerusalem. Now the last symbol that is given in these verses is of an eagle flying through the midst of heaven and saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts of the three angels who are about to trumpet. And the word earth there actually should be translated as land. Uh, anywhere in the book of Revelation that you have gase, it's a reference to the land of Israel. Now while Josephus does mention one time when there was a voice of a person that could not be seen, nobody could see this person, but they hear this voice crying out, woe, woe, woe to Jerusalem, I'm not going to be dogmatic on whether that's this voice or, or not. Uh, I don't think we actually need to have a literal voice coming from uh, heaven since literal eagles don't talk. Um, well, I guess God could have had, a, he had Balaam's donkey talk, right? So he could have had an eagle flying over the sky and, and uh, saying exactly what it says here, and then it would have been a symbol of the Roman golden eagle. But since eagles don't usually talk, even the most literalist of commentators say that this must be a symbolic eagle, symbolically speaking Israel's doom. Well, was there a symbolic eagle during that war? Yes, there was, a very significant one. I believe this was the eagle standard that was captured from Cestius' legion by the Jews on October 18. It was extremely rare in Roman history for an eagle standard to be captured, and when it was, Rome did all in its power to fight back and regain that eagle. It's almost like it's a symbol of Rome itself being captured, so Rome could not ignore such a shameful state of affairs. So while the Jews thought that the capture of the eagle signaled a resounding defeat of Rome, like happened under the ancient Maccabees, God declares this destruction of one-third of Rome's army and the capture of the Roman eagle is not something to rejoice over at all. Now these Jews, they're carrying this symbol. They're so excited. They got this symbol. Nobody's hardly ever done this in history. The Germans did it. But they're the second ones to do this, and they're lifting this eagle up in the air, flying it, saying, this is something to rejoice in. And God is saying, oh, no, that's not something to rejoice in. That eagle that you're carrying through the air is actually declaring, whoa, whoa, whoa. In fact, all hell breaks loose in the next chapters as, um, as uh, the, the war begins to develop against Israel and uh, leads up to the end of chapter 70, when the last uh, uh, chapter 11, when the last trumpet is blown. 
Now, because it's so easy to forget the flow of history that's being symbolized in this chapter, let me give you a bird's eye view of the, the history behind this whole chapter. And I'll just give a little, little bit of review here. And we're going to begin actually in verse 7 where the first trumpet sounds. The first trumpet is when Cestius came into Galilee with 30,000 highly seasoned soldiers. The heart of the army was the 12th legion. It was supplemented by the 4th and 6th legions as well as armies from their other allies. And if you were living in the first century, I think you would have been very, very familiar with everything I'm about to tell you. Cestius started attacking Galilee because that was the thickest hotbed of the zealot rebellion, uh, the, the, the rebel activity. That was on September 8. Verse 7 indicates the whole countryside began to be burned to the ground with a third of Israel's forests being destroyed. In Galilee, an estimated 100,000 Jews were either enslaved or killed. And um, that was just Galilee, that way up north. Who knows how many were killed and enslaved uh, down south in, in Judea. Massive numbers of refugees fled ahead of the army down into Jerusalem, swelling the population of Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because there are skeptics who later on in the book say, uh, Revelation is absolutely wrong because Jerusalem never had that many people in it. How could that many people have been killed? Easy. Jerusalem's population was swelled by two things. The first was, uh, throughout the next three years, every festival, there are people from around the world that are coming to the festivals. They're allowed by the Romans into the city. And this was strategic on their part. They're not allowed out of the city. In fact, the rebels wouldn't allow them out of the city. So that's the first thing that starts swelling the numbers. The second is there's these massive numbers of refugees that are fleeing ahead of Cestius's army. It's almost as if God was starting to fill up the city for judgment. Then if you look at the map on the front side of your outline, you'll see that Cestius came into Judea, taking Caesarea, Joppa, Antipatris, Lydda, and Beth Horon, and then finally advancing toward Jerusalem with his armies. But as he starts approaching the city, the citizens of the city come streaming out to fight. And let me read you Josephus' eyewitness account. The Jews, seeing that war was now approaching the capital, abandoned their feast and rushed to arms and with full confidence in their numbers, but without order, leaped boisterously into the fray, disregarding the seventh day's rest, for it was the Sabbath, which they usually observed with special reverence. But the passion that shook them out of their piety carried them to victory in the battle, and they fell upon the Romans with such fury that they broke and penetrated their ranks, killing many. Had not the cavalry, with part of the infantry, which was not so hard-pressed, wheeled around to the relief of the broken line, Cestius with his whole army would have been in jeopardy. 550 Romans were killed, 400 infantry, and the rest cavalry. The Jews lost only 22. Their frontal attack halted. The Jews retreated to the city, but from the back of their lines, Simon, son of Eurus, fell upon the Romans from the rear as they were mounting towards Beth Horn, cut up a large part of their rear guard, and carried off numbers of their mules, which he then drove into the city. While Cestius remained in his former quarters, the Jews occupied the heights and kept guard on the columns, clearly not intending to remain inactive if the Romans began to march. At this point, Agrippa, realizing that not even a Roman army was safe when such a huge force occupied the surrounding, surrounding mountains, decided to try to confer with the Jews. He hoped either to prevail on all to cease hostilities or at least detach from their opponents those who did not share the view of the war party. Accordingly, he sent his two friends, both known to the Jews, Borsius and Phoebus, with an offer of a treaty on the part of Cestius and of a sure pardon by the Romans for their offenses if they laid down their arms and returned to their allegiance. But the insurgents feared that the prospect of an amnesty would induce the entire army to go over to Agrippa, violently assaulted his emissaries. Phoebus was murdered before he had uttered a word. Borsius was wounded but managed to escape. 
Citizens who protested this outrage were attacked with stones and clubs and driven into the city. Cestius, seeing that these internal dissensions in Jerusalem presented an opportunity for attack, brought up his entire army, routed the Jews, and pursued them to Jerusalem. He pitched his camp on the so-called Mount Scopus, seven furlongs from the city, and suspended all attack upon it, perhaps expecting that the defenders would surrender. But he sent out many foraging parties to the surrounding villages to collect grain. On the fourth day, the 30th of the month of Hyperberateus, he deployed his forces and led them into the city. For the people were under the thumb of the insurgents, and the latter, overawed by the orderly discipline of the Romans, abandoned the suburbs and retreated into the inner city and the Temple Mount. Cestius, on arrival, set fire to the district known as Bezetha, or New City, and the so-called Timber Market. He then proceeded to the upper city and encamped opposite the royal palace. If he had chosen at that very hour to force his way through the walls, he would have captured the city immediately, and the war would have been brought to an end. But then his camp prefect, Tyrrhenius Priscus, and most of the cavalry officers, bribed by Florus, dissuaded him from the attempt. Thus it came about that the war lasted so long, and the Jews drained the cup of irretrievable disaster. Now the pro-Roman moderates, as I mentioned before, who were inside the city, mainly Sadducees, had sent invitations to Cestius, promising to open the gates to him. They begged him to come, put an end to the unrest, but Cestius, again, for some reason totally unknown to us, did not take advantage of that, um, uh, of that offer. That would have made everything so easy. And when the rebels discovered what the moderates had offered, they were outraged. They arrested them, later killed them, killed them all. And um, so in the meantime, Cestius waged an incredibly successful assault, took over the city, after five days managed to undermine the wall, was on the verge of setting fire to the gate of the Temple Mount when he mysteriously stopped. God's orchestrating all this, you can see, but the historians are mystified by so many things in this account that just don't make sense. Uh, once again, it would have been just a matter of hours before he would have conquered the city completely. And it would have been so much easier on Israel and on Rome if he had done so, but he didn't follow up on his advantage. Nobody knows why, but Cestius gave up the assault and he actually retreated. He almost won the war, but he retreated. It doesn't make any rational sense. When the Roman army retreated, the rebels gained heart, thinking God was on their side, left the city, attacked Cestius's army. Cestius was hemmed in on all sides, and in desperation, he left behind 400 of his best men as a ruse uh, to make them think, you know, when daybreak came, that uh, his whole army had entrenched themselves to fight, but it was, he just left them there to be slaughtered, while he and the rest of his army escaped barely, uh, almost total annihilation, but uh, they managed to escape. So they were sacrificed to save the legion as a whole. And um, in that battle alone, he lost 6,000 men. Uh, it, that was a bad day for him. Most damaging to the Roman pride was the loss of their golden eagle. In their haste to flee, they also left behind massive amounts of baggage, food supplies, but most importantly, war instruments that the Jews later on used against the, the Romans. Josephus gives a lengthy description of the slaughter of the Romans. One-third of Cestius's army was lost. One-third of the auxiliary armies were lost. One-third of the pro-Roman forces in Jerusalem were lost. It was a massive judgment upon both Israel and Rome. And I don't know how you could have 
more eloquent way symbolized what happened than John did in the language of these two verses. Now, of course, the rebels didn't recognize it as a disaster. They took this miraculous victory as a sign God was on their side, that this was the beginning of Israel's liberation, that they were going to start a new republic just like under the Maccabees, you know, when the Maccabees miraculously restored Israel when they fought against Antiochus Epiphanes 300 years earlier. And, of course, each of the leaders of the factions, they want to be, Antiochus, they want to be Judas Maccabeus, right? They want to be the famous leader. So there is a desperate power struggle for the next three years within Jerusalem trying to gain the ascendancy. They kill more of each other than the Romans do. It was an absolute disaster. And Josephus mentions that it was during this brief period alone from October 18 and the next two or three days. We're not sure exactly to how many days, but very, very short window that anyone could escape the city. And he mentions many who did leave. This may have been when the last of the Christians left as well. Jesus had warned them in Luke 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And that's the next few chapters. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now let me just conclude with a few more thoughts. I've already made some applications I think should have been obvious, but let me end with two, two more. The first phrase in verse 12 indicates that the first cause of this war was not men. It was not even Satan. Take a look at verse 12. It says, so the fourth angel trumpeted. It was a good angel. Remember that each of these angels is trumpeting, saying to their legions, okay, it's time for our legion to go out and start attacking. So this angel is the one who begins this, this, uh, this process of, uh, of the war going, and who gave permission to these angels to sound their trumpets? It's Jesus in verse 1. It's when he opens the seventh seal that these trumpets begin to be trumpeted. He is the sovereign over history. Now that's not to say that Satan is not at work too. The next three chapters show the irrational rage of Satan and the demons against everything that God stands for and all of creation. But little did Satan realize that he is just a pawn, just a pawn in Christ's chessboard of life. He's just a pawn. It was Christ's angel that started the chain reaction of events leading to Cestius' killing and enslaving of 100,000 Jews in Galilee and who knows how many in Judea. It was Christ's angel who begins a chain reaction of events that guarantees that the Jewish rebels would reduce Rome's huge army by one-third. These were his covenant lawsuits against Israel and Rome. And the point is, it is so easy for us to lose sight of God's sovereignty when things are going bad for us. Very, very easy, but we need to rest assured that Jesus has the power to use our enemies and his enemies as pawns. Both the rebels and Cestius were unwitting agents of judgment upon each other. God can use Obama, he can use Hillary, he can use Trump, he can use anybody that he wants as instruments of judgments, but never forget Jesus is sovereign, he is sitting on his throne. The second thing that I learn is that the so-called conservative victories that we achieve in politics are not the solution to this nation's rebellion. Would our nation be out of danger of Christ's anger if Trump won and if he happened to be able to fulfill his promise and put some good Supreme Court justices in there? No way. There's so much more that Christ is angry at our nation about. Now, uh, could something like that um, 
uh, slow down the pain a bit? Yes, it could. Could it be useful? Yes, it could. But never forget that this is Christ's world and victory must be defined upon his terms. If Jesus is not pleased with the political victory, it is not a victory at all. We must look at religion and politics through biblical eyes. Now, I bring that up because some people in Israel would have considered the invitation that Ananus and the other high priests gave to Cestius, come in, you know, rescue us. They wanted to open the doors, that that was a wise thing. It would have averted disaster. But even if they had succeeded in doing that, would that have averted Christ's anger? No way. It would not. Now, Josephus thinks that that attempt was the best thing, that he says very clearly, if they had succeeded, it would have saved Israel. And I say, no, he was wrong. Josephus was absolutely wrong. It would not have saved the country. It would only have been a temporary political victory. Now, certainly, they might have been able to negotiate the removal of that horrible Roman procurator, Florus, and gotten a decent position for themselves, but it would not have averted Christ's anger. Others might have considered the capture of the eagle and the routing of the Romans to be a conservative victory. There are actually plenty of people who were very excited. That victory led many Jews to come from all over the world to Jerusalem. They wanted to get in on the fun. This is great. These guys are having awesome victories. We want to be associated with this. Without ever removed Christ's anger? No. And actually, there were at least four perspectives among the factions of this time on what would constitute a victory. None of them were right. True victory must be defined as repentance and bowing before King Jesus as Lord of the nation, Lord of the church, and Lord of the family. Jesus does not negotiate political deals like the Democrats and the Republicans do. He makes demands of unconditional surrender. And until that happens, our nation is in trouble, deep trouble. Now, could that happen? Some people are so discouraged, they say it's hopeless. No, it could happen. You look at how bad things were before the first great awakening in America. Oh, the politics, the cultural disaster, it was horrible, very, very depressing. It was pathetic. But God's spirit swept, swept through the land, and the cultural changes were amazing. Will God do it again? I have no idea. It's not up to us to know. It's up to us to be faithful, to call our nation back to God's law, to bring the Bible back into the, the, the public square and leave the success in God's hands. Ours is the duty. His is the results. So let's just make sure that we label victory and defeat properly. And it's my conviction that it really doesn't matter which candidate wins the presidency. And it didn't matter which party takes over the Senate. God is still pronouncing woes upon our nation. Things will get worse and worse until there is true repentance. And I think it's high time that the church calls people to repentance back to the old paths, back to the law and to the gospel. Now, Israel did, never did repent, and it was left a desolate house, dry and demonic. I'm convinced by other prophecies that that nation will eventually come back to Christ. Why? Because all nations will come back to Christ. But um, they stand as a testimony to me of what happens to a nation when you look to politics as savior. You will be left dry and desolate and a haunt of demons. I think chapter 9 is quite clear uh, on that, and I don't want that for America. And that's why I do not see politics as Savior, even though Christians must be involved in politics. It's so important that Christians not put their hope in princes of any stripe. Christ's anger can be removed by one thing alone, repentance, which leads to being washed in the blood of Christ and being changed by his grace. Now, Rome was different than Israel. 
While it suffered horrendously too, God ordained the judgments against Rome to be redemptive judgments, and there was an explosion of gospel success from this time forward in Israel, all over the nation. There were entire smaller regions that had become completely Christian. They were following, the church was following Joel McDermott's advice in his book, Restoring America One County at a Time. They did not look to the president for salvation. They did not even see Christianity as being imposed. No, they believed in the free market of ideas. God's spirit can convince people to be converted. We don't impose anything. We don't believe in that. That's not what true uh, biblical um, reconstruction is all about. What it's about is winning people to the gospel, discipling individual Christians to think biblically in every area of life, and you begin seeing changes until at some point, about 300 years later, Rome itself became a Christian republic. But it happened because people realized that Jesus is Savior, not the state. Jesus is the true son of righteousness, not Nero. America is at a crossroads, and it's my hope and prayer that it will embrace God's law and gospel and not opt any longer for political messianic aspirations. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for the warnings that your word gives. These are warnings for our good. Uh, and we thank you that your promise in Jeremiah 17 is that the moment a nation repents that you relent of the disaster that you intended to bring upon it. And I pray that you would pour out a spirit of repentance upon this nation, that you would send forth an even greater awakening than we have seen before. Please, Father, for the sake of your son uh, and uh, his kingdom, we pray that you would send revival, that you would send your reformation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.